Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes uncomfortable secrets of category creation in the B2B software space. On this week's episode, we have Anna Fisher, CMO of Spiff, and Garrett Mergut, CEO of Directive, with special guest host Olivier Labbe, president of Metadata.io. Hey everyone, this is Olivier LeBay uh, filling in here for Gil Alouche. Um, we have a great podcast today, super excited uh, to introduce our guest today. So first one is Anna Fisher, she's the CMO at Spiff. Um, and then we also have Garrett Mirguth. Uh, I've tried my best there, he's the CEO of Directive. And uh, so thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, we're gonna be talking about category creation today. And so first love for Anna to uh, introduce herself. Great. Thank you so much for having me. So um, my name is Anna Fisher. Uh, I am the CMO at Spiff. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with what Spiff does. Uh, so Spiff is a new class of software. Uh, and our goal is to drive motivation and success uh, by creating trust across the organization. So uh, we do that by delivering real-time automation of complex commission processes, and that's creating trust for both the sales team, but also uh, across the organization, especially in finance. Got it. All right. And then can you share one thing that our listeners might not already know about? All right. Um, it's a tough one. I think uh, most people don't know that I was uh, actually born in Russia, so I speak um, Russian fluently. Okay. All right. My fun fact. That's all I got. <laughs> I'm sure you got a lot more than that. <laughs> all right, Garrett, you're up. Yeah, no, it's awesome, man. Well, thanks first off for having me. Um, name is Garrett Marigut. I run an agency called Directive. Um, I think we're the biggest performance marketing soft, like agency in the world for software. So a lot of the IPOs you see, a lot of mid-market publicly traded software companies, uh, we do kind of demand gen uh, and what we call customer gen uh, for them. So yeah, really, really fun. Good time. Uh, and enjoy kind of doing that with them. Okay. And then what's uh, something that we can learn from you today? I like to work on air-cooled Porsches. Like I have lots of hobbies, but I kind of like working on like old school kind of stuff and like tuning it. I don't get to be an individual contributor as much anymore. So I come up with my own little individual contributor hobbies. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. All right. So let's get uh, cracking on the category uh, creation part here. So um Anna, you mentioned a little bit about uh, what Spiff does. And so love to uh, get some insight. Like is the category, because, you know, I've, I've known other vendors and been in the space for a little while. And so love to hear, you know, what is the name of the category? How long yeah. has it been active? And then are you trying to recast this category or are you essentially uh, trying to, you know, make it bigger? I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on strategy as it comes to your category at this point, moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Spiff is a part of two existing categories, right? So sales performance management is one that people might be familiar with, uh, and another is incentive compensation management. Um, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is really disrupt this industry, um, and, and clearly there's room for disruption. Uh, again, obviously I'm super biased, but I think that the legacy solutions in the space uh, haven't done an adequate enough job in solving the problem that we're trying to solve. Uh, and so 
the way that SPIF is coming um, up with a solution is just different than what some of the solutions that already existed were doing, right? Um, and so one of the most important things, and I talk a lot about trust, right? Um, and one of the things I hope our sales team probably does, but hopefully they don't do is roll their eyes. Um, at the end of the day, that's where I feel like the other solutions in the space have really failed. Um, the end users, the finance users are not necessarily trusting that, that they can use their platform to solve problems when they need to. So when they're building incentive compensation plans um, to be able to make changes whenever they feel like it, just like any other SaaS software, right? When we buy technology, um, I think about the technology I buy in marketing automation. Um, although it's complex, I should still be able to come in and run a campaign if I need to. I shouldn't have to rely on professional services. Um, on the sales team, right? Um, we really want our sales reps or the sales reps that are using our platform to trust their finance team and trust their commissions. And I think that there hasn't been enough done for that persona. And at the end of the day, incentive comp is all about motivating salespeople, right? That's the whole purpose of it. And so putting the trust back into those two parts of a very important parts of the organization, right? Um, and then there's other parts, of course, of companies that use incentive comp, whether it's um, you know, bonus structures for executives or whatever that might be um, that I feel like there's just not, they haven't done an adequate enough job and no, I have tons of respect for what they've done, right? They've really pioneered the space, but there's just room for disruption, especially nowadays and what I think people expect from a solution. Um, and so that's where we're starting, right? Uh, incentive compensation is definitely a, a challenging area. It's a super complex mathematical um, it, right, issue. There's a lot of uh, behavioral stuff that comes into account where people really think about like, well, what incentivize people um, to perform better, right, for the sales reps. And then there's also an element where, um, you know, there's also an element where that's kind of where we're getting started. Um, that's at the core and then continuing to grow and, and kind of um, take over a lot of the initiatives that spreadsheets sort of replacing spreadsheets as you as you will, um, because you'd be surprised how many companies are still using spreadsheets. Um, so there's there's a lot of elements. And when I think about the category we're create, creating or disrupting, it's really, there's, you know, there's others in the space and some of them do certain things really, really well, um, but we're just coming at the problem differently. And again, that's why we consider ourselves a new class of software. And again, incentive comp and um, variable comp and uh, SPM is kind of where we're starting, but that really is the foundation of where the whole solution will grow. So as of right now, we're disruptors, but uh, sky's the limit in the future. I'm very excited about our roadmap. Okay. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I mean, you're talking about spreadsheet. I'm like, so you guys are going to go after Airtable pretty soon? Getting yeah, into I mean, that? Yeah, you know what it is? It's uh, So right now, again, <laughs> there's so much market as shared as it comes, even with big companies you'd be surprised or to try to build their own or using spreadsheets just just is not scalable right like imagine trying to share your entire sales orgs commissions on spreadsheets like it's such a challenging job for the people who have to do it and um i i know i feel like it sounds really cheesy but i feel really fortunate that we're able to come up with a solution that helps people's lives and again uh sounds cheesy i know but we have talked to clients and prospects who are actually in tears because of the manual labor that they have to go through, whether with spreadsheets or any of the other solutions they might've used. Um, and so I do think what we're doing is different uh, and innovative and disruptive. Yeah. I, and mean, biased. I am biased. Yeah, yeah. I'll give well, you that. that. 
paying people on time is one of the most important things. And, uh, and I've been in sales a long time. Comp plans can get really, really complicated and, uh, no one likes to be late on uh, paying their employees. So, um, Garrett, all right. So you guys, uh, you're, you're up and coming agency. And as you said, one of the largest at this point for performance marketing, you guys are working with a ton of B2B customers. So I'd love to learn, like, how, how did you decide to, you know, start um, this business? And since it is more of a service business instead of a software business, I'd love to hear your thoughts about, you know, how you're trying to recategorize uh, marketing agencies. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for the great question. Yeah. So, you know, services, I think when you serve a specific industry, it's really powerful if you can understand their business model and try to integrate it to yours. Um, so we like, for example, have a product marketing team at Directive. Uh, because if you treat your services like a product, it's a lot easier to scale, right? Like when we, you know, we've added over like 150 people in the last nine months. Okay, well, if that's the case, how do you maintain quality, for example? Like what are your checks and balances at that kind of growth? So we're learning a lot from, I think, the software companies around, okay, how do they think about CS? How do they think about product? And then as we emulate their businesses, they become more comfortable also with partnering with ours. Um, but yeah, the story of Directive is really cool. So you know, I was actually slinging social media calendars on Fiverr about eight years ago. So that's kind of how we got started. Um, you know, I just done my degree in economics in a couple of years. I did my MBA. And then I figured, you know, what did everybody who had money, what were they bad at? And what did they think I was good at? And they thought I was good at the internet. So I figured, darn, all right, I'll just go learn it. Right. So I kind of just read everything that was out there. Um, got some really small clients for a couple hundred bucks a month. They asked me to do something. I said, hey, I've never done before. I'll try. I did it. You know, like they want to rank or they want to drive this amount of leads and they want to get this much in sales. And then from there, you know, you just kind of stay ambitious and you work hard. And, you know, we kind of bootstrapped ourselves to, um, you know, this size and, you know, this volume of growth. And what's cool about us, I guess, compared to the market is, you know, I have a bigger ad budget than a lot of my clients. And so we have a true R&D mentality where we spend, you know, one to two million dollars a year on advertising as a professional services firm. And I don't know anyone else in the world who spends like that, which I find ironic because they're supposed, if you're so damn good at it, why can't you do it for yourself? You know what I mean? And um, so that's kind of been our mentality. Uh, and, you know, we did launch our own category actually called customer generation, um, which is about delivering on the promise demand Jen forgot about. Uh, what I kept finding was, you know, our CMO clients and our partners and our heads of digital, there's this MQL thing and it, MQL, became, I think, for this desire in our humanity to have a number we can own as marketers, something we're not codependent on, right? But our companies don't make money interdependently. Like we are a part of sales, whether we like it or not, right? And so we've kind of helped show how to focus on SQLs and how you can actually drive a true SQL from digital instead of an MQL and then what that can do for your business. So uh, it's been really, really successful for us. We've gotten to work with some amazing customers. Uh, we're growing every day. Um, and, you know, our category and how we're seeing the world is a massive part of it, to be completely honest. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. So in terms of, um, and I was wondering from an analyst relations standpoint, right? So it's a big part of creating a category. So you, you show up on day one and I, I think you've been there for what, a couple of years now. Um, what analyst firms was the company already engaged with um, and how has that shifted over the last little while? Yeah. So I joined Spiff about a year ago. And when I first joined, we actually weren't engaged with any of the analysts. And so uh, one of the things I did, one of the first things I did actually to learn about the space also 
uh, was engaged with Gartner. So that's the one that I probably talked to the most. Our analyst in our space is actually just, honestly, just a really good person, which helps. Uh, I like good humans. She's just, she gets it. She knows the space, she understands. And I love that she's very honest with me. That's kind of what I look for in an analyst relationship. Like I'll, I'm happy to teach you about what we're doing, where we're going. Um, we're about to launch a new website. And I was like, hey, I'd love your thoughts. And she gave me, and I was like, honest thoughts. Don't, just cause we're a client, I don't want you to tell me it's great. Like, that's not what I'm looking for. Um, and so it does, it definitely is a, a, a bi-directional relationship. Uh, I mean, we pay for it, right? So, but at the same time, uh, Gartner is the big one that I have, um, that I've really built a relationship with just um, in, in like the very short amount of time I've been here. The other ones that I've worked with or started to work with is Forrester. Um, there were a bunch of other ones I've worked with uh, in my career, but that maybe aren't a perfect fit yet for SPIF. Uh, so we're starting slow there. It's not uh, the biggest part of our budget uh, or focus, but definitely something that I personally spend time on. Yeah. So how do you, you decide which ones you wanted to go with first? Um, did you pick Gartner because they're the largest? Um, yeah. You know, um, uh, and then in terms of Forrester, do they have do they have a wave report? And um, and what what is the reason for you waiting on on that engagement? Yeah, great question actually. Um, so I picked Gartner because I wanted to do research to understand like who's already writing about our space uh, and how do we make sure that one we're either involved or included. And if we're not included, I want to understand why not. Like, why would we not be a fit? And we were included. Uh, we are uh, in their market guides, right? And so uh, I wanted to understand from their perspective, um, what is essential on moving up market? So SPIF does a phenomenal job, mid-market, upper mid-market, and starting to really, like, we're good in enterprise. We're not great. Uh, and so I wanted to understand what are those clients looking for? What are they hearing from their clients? Um, and what feedback can they provide? And then also, honestly, again, like I want to educate them on what we're doing differently, because I think yeah. to me, that's also important. We are not attacking the problem the same way legacy solutions were. And oftentimes I find that analysts, uh, especially analysts have been in the business for a long time. They're like, yeah, I got it. There's like these core products and they're huge and they're built out and I'm good. Like I know what I'm doing uh, and, and I know how to refer these, but it's harder as an up and comer, as an organization that's really trying to break through to make sure that they see how you do things differently and that you solve those problems in a better way. Uh, and so it was definitely bi-directional. I wanted to make sure that we and our roadmap had the uh, solutions to the problems people were coming to her with, but that I could educate her on how we're just how we're doing things differently. Uh, the reason we didn't go after Forrester right away is they didn't have as strong um, of a, as a presence in that space. Uh, it's not that they don't, you know, um, but I just wasn't as familiar with the analysts. So uh, we started with Gartner, but there are definitely other analysts uh, and firms that we are going to continue to work with as we continue to grow. And then is, has there been a report since you guys have been engaged with, with Gartner? Have you guys, as uh, your efforts been able to move the needle or is there a report coming out next year? What one is? Yeah. So right now they have uh, uh, market guides that come out every single year. Okay. Um, and then there are other um, agencies like consulting agencies very specific to our space where we've been included in their report and I have seen a sort of like move the needle there, um, but not any of the, like the big um, analyst firms that you might be familiar with. Okay. So Gary, yeah. um, analysts don't cover this space as of now. So I'm going to shift the question a little bit now in terms of, because there's review sites and um, that handle uh, services. So curious to hear here, um, is that something that, you know, your uh, company and organization is thinking about? Yeah. So, I mean, it's actually kind of cool what Anna's saying. So like about five years ago, I tried to pioneer this concept called Sheriff Serb, right? So 
the way a search engine works a lot of times is if there's purchase intent and it's modified. So let's say um, she's in, let's say the incentive comp planning, whatever you want to call it, right? Performance comp, sales comp, sure. whatever, right? Those little queries. When you modify it by best top or reviews, AKA queries that are indicative of purchase intent, third-party review sites show up, right? So when she goes with Gartner, the beauty is she also gets Captera and GetApp and software advice, right? When she wants to go to market, she can spend more on software advice by setting lead criteria that hit her financial modeling, right? So like we did all this for exactly um, and, and blew it out of the water for him. So it was funny that she said Gartner because I actually like, it's like Calidus Cloud and Exactly are kind of like the two giants in our space. And we partnered with Exactly uh, really well for uh, a couple of years actually. Uh, help them. And then that team took us to Sumo Logic and we did everything there pre IPO. Uh, and that was actually the MQ was a big part of it. For my industry, I have the same problems I'm sure Anna does, which is, you know, we, we own the mid market, right? So if you're a SaaS company with at least 25 million in funding or plus 100 employees, um, there's about 9,000 of them in the US. And when you modify that down and validate it, it gets about 5,000 accounts. We booked sales meetings with 75% of them in the last nine months. So the question is, how do you go up market? Right. And that's where actually the review sites tend to struggle. And it's cool to hear Anna's perspective because she's right. Like when she goes on the Captera, she goes on the G2s, you get a lot of the SMB in the mid market, but you don't have a lot of elasticity on your average order value. So it's hard to get your finances different through those review sites. So like for me as an agency, there's sites like clutch.co and then they have a bunch of like other kind of spammy ones. Um, and I actually did the SEO for clutch.co about eight years ago, uh, which is kind of crazy that it goes full circle. But it's hard on those because the way review sites work, in my opinion, as a company is the competitors and their pricing creates an anchoring on the audience's expectation. So when I advertise on Clutch, I've got a 10K minimum annual contracts. Okay, so I have $120,000 average order value. The people on the same list next to me have a 1K minimum. And so what it's doing is it's really hard to go up market in these environments because of what the expectation is because you don't compete as a company with your competitors, you compete with your channel level competitors. In other words, she's competing with the people that are also on Gartner and looking at it, not all other companies, because that's where they're coming from in that moment. So when I'm on Clutch, let's say, and I got a bunch of 1K people, it's hard to stay relevant. So that's what's hard about review sites is they're not great for going enterprise. And that's where more of the analyst relationships and that more bi-directional thing where that analyst hears something and they know about SPIF and then they connect them more offline. That's more of that enterprise function. And you get that a little on software advice, that pay-per-lead model, but we don't get that much in the professional services world. We just have Forrester actually, but we have way higher qualification criteria. So you need 25 million in revenue and just paid to qualify for their uh, marketing wave. So it's really, really hard to break in. And it's the same eight companies that are from the private equity holding co's. We're right there now. So we're actually able to break in next year. But then I just talked to the analysts and they're like folding it. And I'm like, great, cool. So ours is a little tougher in that space, uh, how you break into these review sites. Got it. Okay. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, Anna, do you guys have a, a review strategy? And, and how does that um, you know, um, help deliver your, your analyst relations and, and uh, brand yeah. creation? Strategy? Yeah. Uh, so great question. We do. Um, we actually focus a lot of our attention on review sites. Um, Mostly because we'd love our customers to tell our story for us. Selfish, but it's true. Um, you know, um, I got a brag, humble brag here, but we did just rank number one again uh, on G2. We just released yesterday, did a press release around it. 
um, and we're leaders in 11 categories. Sorry, I had to go there. Uh, and one of including implementation. And so to me, uh, what does that say? So implementation is one of the key things that we talk about as a business all the time, uh, time to value. And so winning something like G2, and I understand that again, G2 is not like where enterprise companies are going to find their solution. Like, I get that, but there, still there for is, us- There's a lot of enterprise companies. I I spent yeah. four years at G2 and uh, you know, the intent data is definitely something that got those enterprise vendors interested, right? Uh, if yeah, you know yeah. Procter and Gamble or Clorox are searching for a product, you're you're going to care about um, what they think yeah. and what they read on the site. Yeah, exactly. So G two is is one that we focus on. Uh, we try to make the reviews, you know, somewhat organic. We ask people to, um, you know, to review us throughout the year and throughout the quarter. We definitely have pushes, right? Um, so just full transparency, we do. Um, but that is something that I, I care about. Like I want to hear from our clients. Um, we don't tell them, hey, rank us a five on implementation. That's that's organic. And so that is really helpful for us. That's helpful for me from a marketing standpoint. Again, full transparency there. Um, we also have a presence on uh, TrustRadius, on um, uh, Pure Insights through, through Gartner. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we're working on is getting just getting reviews on some of the uh, integration partners that we have. And again, I think I think people do care about reviews. I don't know if they'll base their decision solely on that, um, but I do think people read them. Um, and so, uh, getting our clients to tell our story is something that is valuable and um, it's part of our strategy. Yeah, and it's also really good for for SEO, right? Uh, key, yes. Uh, key term searches. Um, so, all right. Um, Next question uh, for Garrett. Um, so as you, you think about you know, brand, because a big part of creating a category is, is your brand, right? And so what, what are the things that you guys as a business are thinking about in terms of, of getting in front of um, you know, more buyers and, and getting more mindshare? Yeah, that's no, a really cool question. So actually it's something I've been solving a lot lately and really focused on. So the whole methodology, like customer generation is more methodology. It's a category, but it's a methodology. Um, there's like this thing going on in growth for these organizations that's really tough, right? So you have Google search that has purchase intent, but no firmographics. And you have paid social that has firmographics, but no purchase intent. And so you're constantly struggling here. You got one channel that'll drive SQLs, but you can't scale it. You got one that drives MQLs, but you can't monetize it. And all of that also needs to drive awareness and you need to be able to fund it, even though you know you can't tie it back one-to-one -to, -one to revenue. So how do you keep the lights on? Because the irony, right? Most of us don't run brand campaigns long enough to ever have a brand. And we can't because we got to drive ROI and we can't attribute it. Okay. And so what customer generation says is you only use first party data, not third party. So the starting point of how I think about brand is I only advertise. So the reason I can spend so much on advertising and the reason we've been so successful is I only advertise to manually verified accounts. Think about ABM on steroids. So I actually map out every single solitary account in my TAM manually verify every one of them. Then I upload them into LinkedIn. Then I upload them to a software like metadata where I can go on paid social like Facebook and Instagram and scale, right? Then what you do though, is then you try to do like a CDP play, right? You try to do a live ramp and then you put in like a stack adapt and you try to go programmatic to scale your brand to the same TAM. Now the problem is you get your butt kicked by match rates because you really struggle to match them, right? You get your Zoom info output, who is a customer of ours, but let's say I get my Zoom info data and I try to upload it. Well, I'm gonna struggle on my match rates. And so what I found is to scale your brand and create your category, especially with programmatic, right? Like I'm running, I'm an agency running connected TV, right? I mean, I'm talking like we are running heavy brand here. 
The way it works is you actually run at an account level on programmatic, not an individual level. Because what happens is your match rates are so poor, you can't get enough impression volume and you get an oversaturation of frequency. In other words, like I might be able to get Anna, but I can't get her director of demand gen just due to the way the scrapers work. So Anna's gonna see my brain 17 times, but she's the decision maker, not the champion. And I believe in champions, not decision makers. So I need to somehow reach the champions. And so to get that scale. So we're actually using ABM via programmatic, not via ABM providers, because I can't do the necessary frequency capping. So what happens when most people run programmatic, let's say you use a terminus who I've been a customer and I got a list, let's say Adobe's in that list. Adobe is gonna take a massive search impression share because of how many people they have at their company. And there's no way to frequency cap at the account level on these ABM advertisers. That's why your budget doesn't work like you think it should. And so what I use, I use programmatic vendors and upload the list and I can control my essentially that and I can distribute it beyond just a crappy version of GDN to like actual placements on like sports games or moments or parts of socially relevant culture. And I can get way better with brands. So that's how actually we've done, a, I think a really strong job of monetizing our direct response campaigns by pairing it with branded programmatic and doing that at really, really big scale across a lot of mediums. Okay, wow, impressive. Um, Anna, so if somebody's trying to, you know, start an analyst relation team, uh, analyst program, you know, what are the couple of first things they should think about? Yeah, um, I mean, I think first things first is do the research and figure out what the right analysts are in your space, um, right? What the right companies are, who those humans are within the companies. Um, I've worked with lots of different analysts, um, some of them much better than others. Uh, we won't give any names, but some of them have become like, not friends, we won't call them friends, but people that I still talk to, even though they don't cover at all the space I'm in today, right? And so um, I think it helps build that relationship with somebody who can give you just honest feedback. Like to me, that's always been the most valuable piece, um, but really picking the right vendor and, and picking the vendor. So depending on your goals, right? If you're just looking for um, product advice or marketing advice, there's I would go to different vendors than if you're looking for someone to have an impact um, within your space. So for us, um, Gartner actually talks to potential clients, right? So for them, knowing who we are really matters. Um, if I was looking for maybe advice on specific marketing channels or campaigns, they probably personally for me would not be the place I would start. So it all depends on the goals, right? Like a lot of these analysts um, want to teach you more than you want to teach than than then you might want, right? If that's not what you're looking for, then that's not the right fit. And so to me, um, identifying what the goal is, step one, and just don't kid yourself on what that goal is. If it's you're a startup or a young company and you don't know how to do something, that can be a really reliable source um, to learn from. But if you're just trying to educate the market, then find the analysts that actually have pull, right? If, it's, if the focus is self-learning, that's one. If the focus is, we'll call it demand gen or lead gen, then or right, um, brand equity, then it's it might be someone totally different. It would be the combination of all there, of them. What, with yeah. what Anna said for everybody, because I think what I see a lot of our customers do wrong is they go to Gartner, not to the analyst. In other words, they think they're gonna go to the analyst company, but they don't actually like go to LinkedIn, figure out who the analysts are in their vertical and build a relationship. Like yeah. you should send them a gift. You should kiss their butt. Like these are the people that have a lot of power in your life and you actually need to build a relationship with them. And that's what Anna's frankly saying. It's like, look, I value the relationship of the humans that are kind of the 
spokesperson of my space yeah. to the broader market and I build deep relationships with them as a human. And then, oh yeah, yeah they also review, like, yeah, I, I think it's such a critical part of why she's successful with it that I see so many people get wrong is they just try to like work with Gartner, not work with a human who's an analyst that they have a deep relationship with and it becomes bi-directional, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. and I've had I've had experiences where just, uh, and there has to be respect both ways, right? There, there does. Um, I have had, it was interesting experience. We were working with one of the analyst firms. I won't sort of mention who they are just in case. Um, and they had a new analyst that just joined all this experience, except for she didn't get our space at all. And so when she would offer opinions, it was really challenging for me. And I like to be really transparent to just like not roll my eyes, like really challenging. And so I stopped, I, honestly, I was like, I can't have these meetings because I want somebody who gets it. And so to me, finding someone who understands our space or is at least willing to learn or listen to what you what it is you have to offer even if they're like listen like I got you you're like the 15th person I've talked to who thinks they're doing this differently like fine tell me that as opposed to pretending if you don't know something ask don't just you know make it up and then there are analysts who um again no one's perfect right but there are there, I have had analysts that I've worked with that are like on their high horse and it's for me personally it's really challenging if I don't believe that I don't respect that they know the space. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, um, two more questions. Uh, these are a little more personal questions, so we're gonna uh, shift it up a little bit here. So, uh, Garrett, what is a hashtag fail moment in your career as an entrepreneur? How much time you got? <laughs> um, I think uh, pricing. When you're younger, when you're starting, pricing's tough. Um, you know, pricing is entirely indicative of what your CAC is. I mean, there's also retention rate and gross margin, but like a big driver of everything is your price. Um, and it's really hard to grow your price. And so I think looking back, you know, one of the reasons it took Directive eight years to grow is because I started charging at $200 a month. So you have to shed your client base because I found people only pay about 1.5x more than they're currently paying you. That's kind of your threshold to grow an account to grow a relationship. You, it's not, you don't get like, you don't get a client who spends 10K and next thing they spend a million, right? You might get a client who spends 750K and you get them to 1.25 million. But you don't like, it's all within context. Does that make sense? And so for, I think for me, some of the biggest things I learned is the importance of pricing and also positioning. Um, Directive really grew when it finally said what no one else in the agency world was willing to say, right? Most people don't niche because the more you niche, the better you have to be at going to market. Right. In other words, most people don't niche because they can open up their arms and catch anything that falls in their lap and they don't know how to spend their money to make more money. So for us, our success came when we layered our strengths, our strengths are financial modeling, understand finance, positioning, our own actual branding, capital allocation. Well, if that's what you're great at as an agency and you choose a niche, now you can scale because you know how to take your money and go get your exact customer at a certain price point. And so really what I wish I would have known more is the importance of pricing and then the importance of true positioning, not like this bastardized version we all do, where we have like 46 personas and 30 verticals. But like I'm talking, we serve software companies, over 100 employees, and our persona we care about is the head of demand gen. I don't have one client across 150 SaaS accounts, the biggest and the baddest, that can tell me that. And that's what I'm trying to get every one of them to, is the confidence to say they serve this human. And when we get to our next round of funding, we can add another human. But it's very difficult to actually be that disciplined because you feel like you're losing something. And, and that's been my biggest learner as a guy, you know, took us from 6 million, to like 25 million in nine months. 
without funding. Like the way you do that is you own a niche and, and it's exceptionally difficult to go from not being niched to being niched. Uh, but if you can pull it off, uh, I mean, it's unparalleled what you can do uh, with your cash. So I wish I would have known that before. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Anna? The biggest fail. Um, biggest fail. That's a really tough one. There's so many. Um, I think the, the biggest fail that I've had in my career, um, you know, it's probably like my career and then my personal life is uh, not just not um, making a change fast enough and um, kind of being scared to fail, right? So my biggest fail is being scared to fail. Sounds really cheesy, but it's true. Uh, it's, it's kind of one of those things where um, I always say, you know, to my team, fail fast, but it's really easy to fail fast on like incremental small campaigns. Oh, $5,000, you failed fast. It's really hard to be, uh, to like go all in on something and then fail there. And so I wish I had done a little bit more of that, a little more of testing and not be as afraid to fail. Um, I am a perfectionist. And so the idea that I wouldn't get it right hundred percent, and I'm, I'm learning that more and more as I see my kids grow up. Um, my daughter, for example, uh, doesn't like to read out loud because she's scared she'll read the word wrong. And so I'm like, wait, but what do you mean? Like, you know how to do it, just, just do it. And so I see, but I, then I take a minute to reflect and I'm like, wait, I do that at work. You know, if, if you're scared to fail, sometimes you don't say it. Um, and so when I think about my personal life, I wish I learned more languages. I'm scared to not get, say the words right. Uh, but obviously in my career as well, uh, I think when you're scared to fail, um, you don't take as many risks and I do wish that I take that I would have taken a bit more risks um, up until this point. You can learn so much from your kids. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's nice. All right, our last question for today. Um, if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice, which I think we heard from Anna, but hopefully there's be another one here. What would yeah. that be? Garrett, you're first. I would have learned a program. Okay. My skill set. I could have done 10x more. I think when I finally pause, I might actually teach myself a program, uh, not so I can actually write it, but so I can better manage uh, technical people. Um, I think there's a certain level of respect you get if you can be successful in business and then go back and actually teach yourself their skill. Um, because I think, you know, like I've developed products at Directive. You know, we do have like a product team here. We do have like engineering, like we do have pieces of that for how we think and how we scale. It's difficult to truly understand, like, do you build this thing on JavaScript, on React or Node? What do you do on the back end? Are you getting the right answer or the wrong answer? How much equity do you have to give away to hear the right answer? And that right answer could still be wrong coming from your CTO, for example. And, you know, I think a lot at the end of the day, like our success as marketers is codependent on our ability to create value for the thing that people actually bought from us. In other words, like directives only as good as the results it drives for its clients, right? Same thing with Honor, right? Like she's only as good as their ability to build trust between finance and sales, right? Like, and that is actually a real problem they're trying to solve, right? And so I think if I could go back in time, I really would wish I would learn how to be a software engineer because it's a, such a special way to be able to express yourself and create something that doesn't exist. Uh, and I have to do that through cooking or like working on car, like other types of things that I'm trying to teach myself but actually having a creative way of expressing what's in your brain and putting it into the world uh, would have been really, really cool. So I really wish I would have learned um, 
how to be a software engineer. My parents always want to be a software for me to be a software engineer. And it's why I got into marketing. So <laughs> I hear you there. Of course. Yeah. I'm like, what's the absolute opposite of that? I think, I think it's marketing. And now it turns out it's not at all the opposite. You're back. Yeah, yeah, they were science, right. yeah. And there we go. Yeah. And, and HTML and all that other stuff that is not coding per se, but you know, yeah. similar enough. Um, so Anna, what would what, be a piece of advice aside from failing fast? Any, any yeah. other advice for our listeners today? Yeah, I, I think one thing that I um, wish I had done more of is being a lot more focused on people first. Um, and that's definitely something that I am focused on in my current role is just caring about the whole human, not just the, and I think the virtual world has kind of forced us to do that a bit more um, where you, I almost feel like you take the time to get to know the person more because you're like in their living room or in their house. Um, I wish I had done that earlier on as well. Um, I've had some, I've been really fortunate. I've had amazing teams, just honestly, I feel so, so lucky. Um, but not always knowing the whole person and not always knowing uh, when someone's struggling or when like even just being more empathetic to them, I um, definitely pushy. Like I want people to like try to always be better. Uh, and sometimes you gotta like take a step back and realize that they might have something going on in their lives and that's why it's not a hundred percent. And so um, that's something I wish I had sort of told myself sooner. And then uh, with that kind of even internalizing and focusing on the, this person, um, because I am definitely someone who like, let's go, let's go hundred percent all the time. And sometimes you gotta take a step back and I love my job. Like I, I, I love what I do. This is like, this is the thing I should be doing. And so, because I love what I'm doing, sometimes I don't step away from my computer. There's always going to be work to do. And so, um, again, I'm definitely guilty of it, but sometimes even stepping away and saying like, okay, Hey, I mean lunch today. I probably, probably should do that. Um, but it's, it's not because, you know, someone's forcing me to, um, it's because I like what I'm doing. And so it's, it's both like focusing on my team and then myself. I wish I did, and I should probably still do a little bit better there. That's some great advice. I uh, appreciate you sharing that with us. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. I really enjoyed the conversation. I learned a ton from you guys. And so just want to say thanks again and um, have a good day. Thank thanks you so you. much. All right. Bye. Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and we'll tune in again. Find all of the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out.